Hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism, a podcast asking the question, what does it mean to be fully alive in the 21st century, and how can we best maintain that aliveness when dealing with the unique stressors of this strange and potent time? I am your host, Brett Kane. I'm a massage therapist and mindfulness meditation instructor, and I guess you could say a Buddhist practitioner at this point in my life. I'm pretty committed to that whole shebang. And most importantly, I have an insatiable curiosity for what people are doing in response to the question that is life in this weird, weird time. And joining me on the show today to answer this question is my new friend and fellow podcaster, Michael Phillip, who you may know as the host of Third Eye Drops, which is a very popular psychonautic mind-bending podcast asking all of the most important questions on meaning and spirituality and just asking good questions. It's the question of how do you even ask a good question? And that's really what this podcast today is going to be about. We really get into the nitty-gritty on why you should be curious about life and how you can actually use discussion as a means to expand and to grow spiritually. I really enjoyed this conversation. We really do jump all over the place as we both acknowledge we end up tangentially diving off into a lot of different topics. And I think that that really is the fruit of the possibility of the tree of conversation is you really don't know what's going to happen. And I think when you're on that cutting edge of ideation and novelty, you can really get into some new things and start teaching yourself and teaching each other. And it's a really beautiful process. It's why I keep doing this podcast and keep reaching out to such unique and widespread folks from all these different uh, philosophical and worldviews. Uh, so today, you know, we're going to be diving into, as I said, discussion as a spiritual practice. We talk about the acceleration of novelty in times of major change. We share our own philosophical trees and kind of riff on why we think it's important to kind of know where you're uh, orienting in the world from and where you're primarily drawing from. Uh, we talk a lot about ultimate truth in this and it, whether or not it's something that you can work towards. Is it something that you can cultivate a deeper relationship with or is it just is? Uh, he shares with me his growing interest in rationalism and what exactly that means. And it may not be exactly what you're thinking. Uh, I, I didn't really actually fully understand it, but I found out that I, I think I'm a rationalist. So that's great. Uh, we talk about the comparisons between Eastern and Western approaches to the truth as best as we can with our limited range of understanding. And what do we do with emotions as we are beginning this path of cultivating a more direct relationship to truth? Uh, we end it all with a little brief talk on censorship because that really is something that's been in the zeitgeist as of lately with the whole Joe Rogan thing, which, you know, whatever side of that coin you're on doesn't really matter. It's an important conversation to understand, like, what's your relationship to censorship? Do you think it's something that works? Or do you think it's uh, one of the worst things to happen to society? So this is a really, really packed episode. There's a few more topics that I'm not going to cover in this intro, but it's really one that is has a lot of meat on the bone. Sorry for you vegans. That is the metaphor I'm going with. Uh, yeah, this is really cool for me to be able to do because I've been listening to Third Eye Drops for, I think I said like four years. So Michael doesn't know it, but back when I was falling asleep to podcasts, you know, I would fall asleep to his voice serenading me into a weird uh, psychedelic dream space that 
it was kind of scary, but usually pretty interesting. So yeah, that's uh, that's what we're doing today, y'all. I just want to say for personal uh, sharing, um, yeah, we didn't. This episode was supposed to air last week, but for those of you who are on my Instagram, you know that I recently got a concussion. So me recording this intro is actually my uh, reintroduction into uh, being in the studio. So yeah, that was my first uh, head injury. It wasn't too severe, but uh, definitely is leaving me with a lot of newfound respect for clarity of mind to not feel drunk all the time. Uh, no worries. Uh, I have an amazing team of body workers behind me who are helping me ease back into regular life. I still, as of recording this intro, feel a little dizzy. Um, it's been about 10 days, <laughs> 10, 11, 12. I don't know. I'm losing count. Um, so yeah, uh, concussions, not fun, not a good time. I don't suggest uh, having that on your itinerary when you go out on vacation. Uh, maybe just start wearing a helmet wherever you go. Just really make sure you protect that brain. I know some people in my extended network who have much uh, more severe head injuries. And oh my God, it is kind of a scary thing. It's a really kind of mysterious injury to have in terms of everybody's brain is going to heal differently. Sometimes even really mild uh, bonks can result in like month-long, year-long effects. So it's just a really mysterious, uncertain thing. And uh, yeah, I definitely have made a lot uh, out of the practice of moving through this healing and you know managing my emotions and showing up fully and just allowing and cultivating patience with it. And that's really what it has communicated to me the most is the importance of patience and really resting in uncertainty um, and being okay with that. Uh, life is a very uncertain thing, and this really just amplified my appreciation for being of able body, and I think it's just so important, and I feel very compassionate for the people who do not have um, – you know, the return to health guaranteed to them as I do. Oh my God, my heart is uh, just, it's really raw uh, having been to the hospital and not having that experience. I just think it's really special that uh, if you're healthy, that you have it. And hopefully, you know, this inspires me to continue my work of tending to suffering. I think that that's a very important aspect of being healthy is to be there for people who aren't I think there's something about that that really brings us into the moment and helps us understand. And again, as related to this conversation, get closer to truth because uh, the truth of things is that life has suffering. And oftentimes we distract ourselves and numb ourselves to this possibility. We try and amplify the amount of pleasure that we have and try and really clamp down and push away the parts of us that are feeling unsatisfactory or diseased. And I just think it's really important that we do not lose sight of the fact that we will all go through heartache. We will all go through illness. We will all get old. And ultimately, we're all going to die at some point. I know it sounds really grim, but the more you really work with that as a reality, I think the more you're going to be at ease when you're well, the more you're going to be able to enjoy and be connected to the people around you, the more you're going to be able to empathize with sickness and illness and pain as it manifests around you and other people. And I think that that's ultimately what this show is about. When I say how we best maintain the aliveness of being in this century, it is how to maintain your vitality 
and really apply it to the issues that are around us. It's not enough to dig your head in the sand. And I think one of the most pure ways is to be graced by uh, misfortune. You know, we can really turn our misfortunes into the path and hopefully use that as a means to strengthen our resolve in our communities. That is what I hope ultimately from this show is to inspire you to step beyond your usual comforts and to really be at the edge of what you are capable of in providing relief for the suffering of those around you. And that's what this conversation really kind of alludes to. We're on the edge of ideation, which is the same edge that is required for you to show up to the suffering of the world. That's my rant. Uh, I've been bedridden for a couple days. So, uh, you know, I have a lot of stuff brewing. So thanks for bearing with me. Uh, without further ado, we do have Michael Phillip. You can check him out at thirdeyedrops.com. He's literally everywhere that you could find podcasts. And I really, really, really suggest checking his show out. He is a master of conversation and everybody he has on really amazing. And as always, if you want to support this show, you can head over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review. You can like, subscribe, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, all the things. We're everywhere that you would want us to be. We also got a Patreon over at patreon.com slash 21st century vitalism. Your support at this time really helps. I really uh, like doing this show and I want to make sure that it keeps on rolling. But sometimes, you know, getting financially reciprocated for your effort is an important thing. So I really would appreciate it. And beyond that, please open your heart, drink some tea, do some stretches and get ready for the mind-bending Michael Phillip. Awesome. Michael, hello, and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism. We are now live. How are you today, my friend? I am doing well. I feel like you kind of know when you're in... I I don't know if I want to sell it like this, but you kind of know when you enter one of these uh, conversational covens, how how you're feeling that day, if you're feeling on, if you're feeling ready to go, if the the wonder juice is loose. And I I truly feel that it is today. I truly feel that it is. Um, I, hopefully I'm not. Hopefully I'm not overselling it. Hopefully I'm not cursing this at the outset. But that's how it truly <laughs> feels. Just a lot of like awkward silences and <clears throat> after that. Well, no, I think you confidently saying wonder juice as you know, confident as you were, I think that that really starts us off well. <laughs> yeah, if you don't, I mean, you can't let the wonder juice loose unconfidently. Yeah. You know, yeah. you got to be boisterous with the wonder juice. You got to be flamboyant with the wonder juice or just keep the bottle on. Yeah. That's already, that's a full teaching right there. We could spend the whole episode just talking about that and the nature of confidence and actually expressing what you're doing. But that's kind of a, I mean, maybe we'll touch up on that. But what I really wanted to start off with was a preface. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if my listeners all know who you are. I think most psychonauts, people who like to ask far out questions are probably familiar with your platform as the host of Third Eye Drops. I personally have been listening for quite a bit now uh uh, how long have you been doing the show i've probably been in for four years yeah it's been i think this 
will be the fifth year. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, congratulations. Uh, it's been really cool to see your platform grow and all the people that you're bringing on are really incredible and interesting. And I think for us to fully properly explore what you're doing in that show, I wanted to start off by asking what got you started in the path of just asking questions? Like it's so easy to just accept and receive the narratives that we're kind of given, but there is this like extra juice to just like constantly be on the edge of understanding and constantly curious. So when do you feel like that started in your life? Man, it's it's knit into the fibers of my personality, I think. I mean, it's it's the sort of cliche upbringing of not feeling intellectually satisfied feeling like the canned answers that i'm being given just don't quite make sense why people are concerned with the things they're concerned with you know jobs churches pastimes most of what people seemed to be predominantly interested in i just didn't understand as a kid and and i was a question asker i think i think i you know, I have pretty I have pretty solid memories of like, hey, dad, what does this word mean? You know, a lot of questions like that. But then also questions that were sort of beyond the purview of proper conversation and questions that I knew people didn't really have an answer to. You know, they're like, you know, I, I have early memories of like being in churches or um, places of of worship of a couple different kinds and just feeling real confused, you know, just just not understanding like what. So how does this answer this? Why why do we do this? And without giving the the painstaking, uh, super long answer, I think that eventually that sense of existential disquiet leads you to wanting to dynamically investigate these questions because I don't believe there is a concrete um, answer to, to any of these big questions, but I do believe the most cathartic way to make process in them is, is dialogue because dialogue is living. It's dynamic. You know, this concept of the dialogos of the, of like the living dialogue the the logos expressing itself through conversational exploration that all parties involved are trying to mutually lift one another up with that's really one of the only things that seems to scratch that itch for me so it's it's i guess it's kind of addictive it is do you think that you need to be engaged in the logos or do you think that just by like watching it or listening to it will kind of scratch that enough or do you think it needs something deeper do you mean feel like that you as an individual are involved in that process yeah i mean i think you know it 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 starts to get into your i guess um ontological predilections or something at this point in the conversation. But to me, if that's an interesting concept to you, why wouldn't you want to express that in your own life? You know, it's a, it's kind of like 
the one of the highest ideals we as human beings have an ability to supposedly connect to so it would kind of it would logically follow to me that if you're not connecting with that you're probably missing out on a core part of what it means to be a human yeah yeah i definitely agree with that and i feel like it's really easy for people to get kind of pigeonholed into belief structures and kind of numb out to that like it's like a flow of energy it might be a really um, amorphous way to talk about it but i know when i'm in a really good conversation it's almost like the words that we're saying isn't even what's important like we could say this idea with a lot of um conviction but mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. it's the meaning that is generated by connecting hearts totally. i've like i've really liked the idea that like words are just linguistic drapes that we throw over this invisible energetic connection that mm -hmm. happens and it's in those moments when we're both on the edge that's where the meaning of it is generated but then you know there are people who like watch and like oh there that was a meaningful exchange i can feel that just by yeah. watching it you can feel a charge you like it when people are really connecting and that communicates but then they look at what's left behind and then they draft that up and then they'll sell that to people. And then you get like organized religion, which is just kind of like the, the, the slug trail mm -hmm. of the yeah. logos. Totally, know? man. Yeah. That it's like you, you package the inert dead thing as if it's the thing, you know, that's what ultimately got kind of got Socrates killed. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. like, um, there's this part in the, um, Plato's apology that I remember where this is toward the end of the trial. So the story of the apology is the story of Socrates' trial. And there's a part toward the end of the trial where he likens himself to an annoying fly and the sort of status quo and all of these power holders as like lazy mules or something like that. And if you think about what that means, he's essentially saying, I'm the one that that wakes you up from your delusion of thinking that you, you know, like you're saying, these these established power structures like the church, like governments, like whatever, who who rest on this legacy supposition of having power and answers when when really I think most people know that they're deeply flawed and ultimately, you know, vacuous of what they claim to be holders of. And he, you know, that I think that's why he's the most well-known philosopher to this day, because he was somebody who was really willing to die for that statement. He was someone who was really willing to be like, I'm going to annoy, I'm going to annoy all of you, even though you're, you as horses are infinitely bigger than, than me. And yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it until you you make me chug the hemlock, and and that's what he did. I'm I'm going all over the place here, but hopefully that made sense. No, I think it does, and it gets me to wonder, like the the role of the the sleeping donkey or whatever it may be. It seems like with a lot of like the great teachers of history, it was always in relation and within context of like this like huge power structure that was really inert mm -hmm. and lumbering. Like mm -hmm. if you look at like Jesus, I mean, obviously yeah. the same kind of situation happened to him. And um, I mean, Buddha to some degree, I mean, he wasn't like murdered or anything, but he was kind of looking at the thousands of years of like Vedic study and was just kind of like, actually, I don't even think there's a self, you know? So it was always within context of something. Do you think yeah. that that's an important element to have something to push against in order to really develop yourself? Totally, yeah. 
yeah, there has to be that disruptive moment, you know, for, for any kind of meaningful revolution to occur, there needs to be some sort of upheaval. There needs to be some sort of boundary disillusion. You know, this is true on a individual level, of course, you know, as anybody who's ever had a transformative trip, you know, psychedelic or, or I mean, or, or physical, I mean, it can happen by traveling out of your country and seeing other ways of life for sure. But that, that moment of boundary disillusion and seeing what you couldn't see before or, or, or conceiving of something you didn't even know you could conceive of, you know, that that's always the harbinger of major, major life altering change. And I, I think the same is true in the macro. Are you familiar with the idea of Kairos at all? Is that, that's not time, that's Kronos. It's a different kind of time. Yeah. So you're on okay. the right track. So um, there's this Greek concept of Kairos and Kronos, you know, that's the kind of time that we're all familiar with, linear time. This happens, then this happens, then this happens. But there was this idea of almost like orthogonal time in, in Greece called Kairos, where it was like times that were harboring extra energy you know they're they're like times of major change major shifting and you know something like the time of christ or the figure of christ would be a chirotic sort of vortex in time or something that like shifted the trajectory um of everything thereafter and it seems to me that there's no better way of talking about that that I've ever encountered. Like I, w when I first heard about it, I think I might have heard about it from John Vervacki. He's this um, professor from University of Toronto. He has a whole series of lectures called um, uh, "Awakening." I think it's either "Awakening from the Meaning Crisis" or something. The Meaning Crisis on YouTube. Definitely worth watching. Amazing, uh, really good stuff. But yeah, when I when I heard about that topic, I was like, "That's such a fabulous way." to describe something that I think we all sense. Like, I think we all sense that for sure, pandemic, for instance, and all the different things around it, like this is a chirotically charged time. Like shit is changing. People are reacting very strongly, viscerally in one direction or another for better or worse. And I think all of these things are indicative of, of, of something being charged up, you know, some, some kind of, um, really potent novelty coursing through reality right now. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm again, tangents. That's what I do. That's, but, um, that's what it's for. That's what, yeah. yeah, that's the space. Yeah. It's interesting. Is it the term chirotic? Is that Oh, I don't said? even know if that's really a word. The word is I kairos, love it. but yeah. 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 Well, I feel like with right now, I know within my own sphere and a lot of people I talk with, with, primarily the pandemic, there's a lot of like civil unrest. It really feels like it's speeding up and charging the momentum of whatever you were already doing. You know, mm. so for me in my own personal life, I was already kind of going towards transforming, getting into a new career, uh, starting this podcast and getting into Buddhism and everything just accelerated. Mm. And, you know, I look around me and it, a lot of people, everybody's lives has dramatically transformed, even if they weren't I mean, everybody was affected by the pandemic, but 
you know, some people like still kept their jobs, but everything around them just started shifting. So it's kind of interesting. I mean, I don't want to draw the correlation of like, you know, the time of Christ coming back and what that meant to them at that point and the pandemic and now, but it's like the, the hyper stimulation of novelty, you know, it seems like it's kind of like an accordion, like, you know, right now we're like kind of like this and then it'll stretch back out. And, you know, I think there's a lot of potency. I mean, something I say at the start of every episode is that we're f finding aliveness in this time of strangeness and, you know, incredible potency. And I think that that's really something I want to direct this show mm -hmm. towards is that like right now is a really liminal space in which you can generate a lot of meaning and find a lot of um, direction, you know, and actual surge of life. You know, I think that that's an important element. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and I think also that opportunity always exists somewhere. You know how there's there always seems to be some group of people, some city, some space, some scene that is just electrified with transformative energy. And eventually it draws the masses to it. You know, you see this in all kinds of different artistic movements too, you know, um, you know, like the the punk rock movement of the 1970s and 80s or something like um, different art, you know, it's, it's, oh, there's always something. And I think if you feel like that's missing in your life or it's just deeply unavailable, you know, we're, we briefly touched on the topic of altering your physical surroundings and the power of that to change your mindset. Like you were talking about it in, in just the context of changing the space in which you work in your in your office or where you live or whatever. And it really, I mean, sometimes that makes such a big difference and physically moving, I think physically and, and altering your, um, the group of people you interact with as well. I mean, really powerful stuff that I think not a lot of people give enough credit to. Yeah. That's something I've realized throughout my life is I've, I've been in a lot of different communities and I really gravitate towards people that I can sink into like a, a genuine deep conversation. Not like a really like trite one, but like one that's like really organic and natural. And I really feel it when I'm with people that there's just like a lot of ridges. There's like not a lot of play happening, you know, yeah. like even if we like start exchanging ideas, it's like there's so many sacred cows within mm -hmm. their sphere that like I'm bound to, cause I, I just go with a machete and I'm slashing and having fun with it. But the more that people invest into like specific things, it, it just, it limits me as well, mm -hmm. you know, and it limits them and it limits the level of exchange and the ultimately the level of like loving exchanging energy, you know, not that it's not there, but it just hampers and contorts something that's like really natural and free flowing. Mm -hmm. So I like that idea of like, if you're not having that in your life, explore, find new spaces, find new people, and like always keep on that cutting edge of your own capacities, you know, whatever that takes which yeah. I think you could probably attest like the podcasting space is amazing for this. Like I've been doing this for a little over a year and I've gotten to meet minds and hearts with some incredible people I would have never had the opportunity to, you know, yourself included. And, you know, it, there's an evolutionary process that feels like it's happening. I don't know if you feel that through yours, not in this super big way, but it's, you know, you've interacted with so many amazing people that I'm sure have, forever change the way that you look at the world. Yeah, it certainly brought a lot of depth to the way that I think, you know, I, I, I think at some point, 
I did have some sort of foggy notion that maybe through this way of exploring, I would hone in on something. But now it's way more about enriching. It's way more about um, upping the resolution on ideas and understanding contextually where ideas fit. Um, like James Hillman had this amazing idea that I heard him uh, describe in, in one of his lectures or one of his books, I'm not sure. But he talks about the idea of figuring out which philosophical tree you belong on. You know, figuring out, I'm on this romantic tree. I'm with Plato. I'm with the, you know, the, the romantic poets. I'm with Voltaire. I'm with all these people on this tree. I'm with Young, blah, blah, blah. Are those all your personal? Well, those are his, but ironically, oh, okay. yeah, many many of them are also mine. I mean, gotcha. for sure, Hillman and, and Young and Plato are three of my biggest influences without question. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that I've figured that out largely due to the podcast and then things that have spun off from the podcast. Because, you know, it's it's kind of like, Either you're going to feel like you don't belong, you know, when, when you have these cur this curious disposition that I have and that you presumably have, and all of these predefined spaces are, are ringing hollow to you or ringing vacuous to you, you're sort of left with two options. One, just come to terms with that and, you know, kind of just shadow walk your way through life or something, or you create that space for yourself via something. It almost doesn't matter what, what you choose to do. But I think that that's the, that's the difference maker. It's can you find a way to verb about that existential wriggle or not, you know? And I guess um, this is my attempt to do that in, the best the best attempt i've made so far i guess i love that finding a way to verb about it i think is such an important thing because it is something that's in motion there i i don't believe in like a static idea that is just like this is the truth and if you learn that concept then you get it it's something you almost have to bring into your own understanding and one of the ideas that i've been toying around with is the idea that like not only are the ideas like not what's important but it's how you what you remember of that idea and how you homogenize it into the rest of your understanding so that when you're engaging in the logos, what comes out is probably not the full idea itself, but it's Never. that idea colored with all of your other um, lexicon as well. And I think that that's an important thing to understand kind of where you are. It's telling you where your understanding is based on engaging with it. And it's only from seeing where you're actually at that you can actually move in any direction you know yeah yeah for sure and i mean i i absolutely agree that i don't think there is a a true like a a a truth or a, a specific way that said i do think that there's a a less open-ended truth or sorry a more open-ended truth like a, a truth that i don't know what the truth is and i'm speaking completely on the meta level here i don't know what that is but so let me ask you this if we don't know what it is and there is no 
final truth, is it also impossible to get closer to truth, in your opinion, then? Hmm. Well, I guess I'm going to start by saying that my wisdom tree, if you will, I think this this framework mm-hmm. will help kind of set up my answer, is more of the Eastern variety. So I yeah. actually haven't spent a lot of time with like Plato or mm-hmm. uh, the other Voltaire. I'm familiar with some of it, but I definitely am plugged, as you can see, more into Buddhism. Yeah, And their idea of truth is that it is something... and I want to like fully speak to the whole thing. It's a very complex system. And this is my Mm -hmm. understanding is that there is a truth that is knowable, but it's not from a place of building up and getting somewhere, but it's a place of removing the things that are blocking it. So you have Mm -hmm. like all the obscurations of the way that your mind habitually reacts to things. And when you're able to really sit, you, you hear the teaching, you contemplate it and then you meditate on it. And the meditating is when you let go of all the concepts. So, in that regard, the concepts wash away the obscurations, and then you're left with sitting practice where you're able to have direct relationship with the suchness of things. That's what yeah. Dharma means is the suchness, which is kind of like the truth. There's no articulation of it, though. Like everything mm-hmm. that you've heard, any concept, actually isn't the thing. Right, right, right. Yeah, the Tao that can be spoken of is not the true Tao. Yeah. Um, so are you talking about like Prajna Paramita, like non-dual ultimate truth? Yeah, I'm actually studying the Heart Sutra right now. So, cool. you know, there is no eye, no ear, no tongue, you know, but that teaching was a part of the second turning of the wheel of Dharma. So the first one, the first set of teachings was all about what's called the Hinayana path, which is like self-study. And mm-hmm. it's where you get your four noble truths and the eightfold path. And uh, the Abhidharma was a part of that where it's like, here's what the mind is. And mm-hmm. after the Buddha got everybody practicing for ever in a day, he ended up coming back and be like, hey, everything I taught you is actually empty and not the thing. And they call it the heart attack sutra because a bunch of the really devout practitioners heard that and were like, and they had a heart attack because it was, they spent their whole lives studying it. And then they realized it wasn't the thing, Hmm. you know, but on the other, another one of those chirotic, chirotic ideas. Chirotic. We're making the word up now. Yeah. We're just permeable. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm somewhat, um, informed on on the eastern way of thinking too like before before i got interested in in the greeks and more i guess western the western canon in general that's where i was interested first like when i was in college taking religious philosophy classes i wound up taking a lot of you know going down that path quite quite a bit i'm i mean we're talking about i'm like a not the level of a practitioner or an expert by any means, but I'm somewhat, somewhat familiar with, with the lexicon and the ideas. And one thing I'll say is that I feel like there's quite a bit of overlap and like a perennial philosophy kind of way, you know, particularly with Platonism and Neoplatonism, there's a lot, a lot of ideas that overlap with Eastern thinking, you know, um, transmigration and or reincarnation, even ideas that sound a lot like karma. Um, it, you know, like um, famously uh, Pythagoras, who is the forerunner of 
platonic thought in many ways was definitely one of Plato's biggest influences. Um, he followed what sounded like a yogi lifestyle. Like he ate vegetarian. Um, he, you know, some of these other ideas I just discussed, but, you know, believed in transmigration of the soul um, and apparently was initiated in some kind of Indian mystery school or something like that at some point. So, you know, maybe maybe uh, I'm looking for invisible threads. In fact, I'll say I'm always looking for invisible threads. <laughs> but it seems like if you if you go through the wisdom, there are similarities that are really hard to ignore. Yeah. But back well, to the question, though. So so the question of do you believe it's close? It's possible to get closer to truth. And for and so I, I think the truth that you're speaking to, you know, is a non-dual truth, right? It's it's a truth that can't be grasped with the mind because the, the mind thinks of things in terms of relationship or or maps or concepts and whatever this is 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 something beyond concept. And I totally agree with that. And I think that that fits into the Western um way of thinking about this too, at least in the tradition of, of like those names that I mentioned. So I have to imagine you think that it's possible to get closer to that through a, a rational path. And by a rational path, I don't mean um, looking at stuff under a microscope. I mean, looking within and doing work with the, with the intellect internally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, even in yoga, there's yana yoga, which is mm -hmm. yoga of the mind. And I think that that's even what that leans into. My approach to it is that it is a verifiable path. And a big part of what I wanted to bring you on, because I think that you're on that pursuit. My interpretation as it currently stands is that the rational path works really well by exploring all of these things. And as soon as you get something really juicy, there's kind of a sense of like, oh, well, that ain't it. So it's like a process of reduction more than it is mm -hmm. a process of going towards. And I, in my own view as it is, like the truth is uh, coming back rather than going out. But I do think that using the rational mind and seeing the extent of where you can go is a big part of the whole thing. Yeah. So so when you're saying rationalism, you, I think you mean it in the more like colloquial way of the i guess the way that it's used by people popularly in that because i just want to make sure i understand what you mean so so you're saying through things like the scientific method through things like um gathering data you know you're you're doing you know not that i'm trying to bash this by any means but you're not approaching ultimate truth through those methods is, is that correct right yeah i don't really rely on verifiable metrics i okay. guess my current interpretation of rationalism is i mean even includes like logic games you know just yeah. like really thinking and like using the intellectual power of the mind as a means to dig deeper and deeper and constantly peel back layers whether or not it's like verifiable i think mm -hmm how it affects my perception and my experiences is what I use as my internal metric, which so far has kept me away from super freely thinking, which I can't say a lot of people, I don't know if that's uniquely for certain people, but mm -hmm. I don't know, is that line us up on that? 
Well, the the reason I bring it up is because I'm sort of trying to uh, revivify the the use of the word rationalism in its older sense of the me of, of the word because there used to be this famous philosophical dichotomy between rationalism and empiricism, and there still is. But in that sense, it's so weird because what most people think of as rationalism is actually empiricism. So doing things like empirical measurement, empirical, you know, um, investigation of the world physically with um, the scientific method, these things would be empirical. And things that are rational are is is like knowledge acquisition done through your own psyche. And and where the the knife really falls if you're going to say whether you're a rationalist or an empiricist is where knowledge comes from that sort of basic epistemological question of do we know things through the birth of the mind or do we know things through investigating the world and of course this is most people would say that's a false dichotomy but the tree that I'm on <laughs> tends to lean more in the rational. The idea that we do, you know, there there is innate knowledge within the psyche, probably reaching further than the individual psyche. And I think that that's a really important, uh, very basic tree distinction is which of these trees resonates more with me? This this empirical way of being that's more analytical, more investigatory, um, more, I don't want to say logical because logic is, that belongs in the realm of, of um, rationalism as well. But th this way of looking, you know, objective, reductive, uh, here's the data, you know, does that resonate or does the contemplation um conversation exploring um psychologically you know and for that reason i do consider myself more on a rationalist side of things i hope i did a somewhat okay job of of laying that out no i think you single-handedly just revivified uh rationalism at least for me yeah good good yeah i i think that i i'm leaning more in that camp as well I think empiricism can be a great tool. Of course, I think yeah. it can be a really wonderful addition, but I think as anything, we shouldn't put all of our eggs in one basket. Um, when you describe rationalism in that way, it kind of gets me to think about the occult. Because like the occult is, I mean, if you really get into a lot of it, is a way of like uncovering innate knowledge and wisdom through practices that are more self-referential to your own mind. It's not about like, testing and like quantifying it but it's about like what is your experience do you have a sensation mm -hmm. of deepening practice so would you say the occult fits under that or is that a different tree different hmm. yeah i mean i think that that you know just processing so yeah, take yes and here's why because when you say the occult Technically, the only thing you're saying is the unknown, because that's what that word means. But practically, if you look at what most people consider to be the occult, things like this, the whole kind of like 
hermetic lineage and ritual magic and whatever, if you trace that all the way back, yes, you're getting to these same places. You're getting to Alexandria, you're getting to Athens, you're getting to mystery traditions. Um, you're getting to cer like ceremonial, probably psychoactive initiations. And so, so yes, for that reason, I would say yes, because these are sciences, ironically, that seek to alter the subjective reality of the participant, hopefully in a way that is constructive, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, w I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. I like in like using like occult practices, um, like magic and I mean, I even put like yoga in the same kind of camp of, I like that you said that it's a science in that there is like reproducible results that, I yeah. mean, that's what like yoga is. It's like this entire practice of how to achieve a very specific state. Same thing with like the Buddhist path. It's pointing to something that is very re reproductible. And I think that, is that kind of a part of the rationalist as well? Yeah. Is that, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think for for me the the term that I guess for whatever reason I like to use is is mysticism because the mystic, you know, if if you look at writings of people who most would call mystics, you know, people, I don't know, like Rumi. Sufis like Rumi or people like Buddha or I would even say for sure people like Plato who who are rationalists and arguably idealists, they are claiming to know a kind of direct experience-based kind of knowledge, and they're trying to lead people in, in that same direction, where I think a cult has maybe more dark undertones or something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're just kind of, we're kind of mincing words here. I still want to get to that, that truth question though, that, mm -hmm. that, that truth question that I asked you of, do you think it's possible, even if we have a non dual truth, you know, and that's something that mystics would for sure, you know, I think that that's what they all have in common is that they've all had some kind of direct Gnostic experience of a of a big truth that's beyond words beyond categories um maybe i'm loading i'm loading the chamber for you here on this answer i think yeah so could you just say just really succinctly just so i can give you a yeah yes, so so no. <laughs> we, we've been we've been tangentially you know going all over here but i keep coming back to this question of you know we both agree that this whatever truth is it's it's going to continuously evade knowledge um, or, or at least evade proving from an empirical standpoint. But so given that, that it can't be weighed, it can't be measured, it can't be captured. Is it possible to, in our own lives, approach truth? Or is that then an absurd thing to do? Because, you know, we can't measure it. So what are we supposed to do? I can't prove it. I can't show it to you. I can't, um, you know, grab a piece of pleroma and prove to you that this this exists. So is it is it a nonsensical thing to even ask, or is it possible in your in your opinion? 
Hmm. It kind of almost feels like a similar question to like, should you even like have a practice of meditation if like you're not going to be able to like reach enlightenment? If everybody's telling you like, it's just going to be this disappointing thing. So in that same sense, I think that it's important to try only in that you become like the verb, which is the expression of the thing and kind of have like a journey without a goal. You know, I don't know if that is like a cop out. So no, maybe you can't get any closer than you already are. Like we're already baked within it, you know? So like the distinction that there's a separate, and this is also leaning into the Eastern thing, that there's yeah. a separate you in which can move closer to the thing. I just don't see that distinction on a conceptual level, maybe experiential, I still have a lot of that dualistic thinking. But I think the more that you try to externalize it as something you can move toward, the more you kind of push it away. But at the same time, there is an element of momentum, of movement, of aspiration, you know, and I think I, I lean more into like aspiring to it, but not feeling put out if it's not this like verifiable thing. Does that answer? Was that? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I agree that that does feel pretty, like pretty Eastern. I, I agree that it does. And, and I think that the Greeks, again, from the standpoint of this platonic cast of characters, at least, I wouldn't say they disagree, but I would say that there's a slight differing that I guess I prefer but it's it's almost like a we might almost be splitting hairs because I think that they agree in that you can't reach ultimate truth but you can make yourself more like that ultimate truth um by investigating its qualities rationally and doing a kind of cathartic inner process that that is contemplative and but is also that you're also like exercising out in the world through the attempted perfection of your own psyche i, I yeah. hope that made some kind of sense so yeah yeah an easy way an, an easy metaphor um is plotinus who's probably the most well-known Platon, like a Neoplatonist writer who wrote the Enneads, which is this amazing, amazing body of work. Uh, it's the famous, um, the famous bit about the statue, you know, that you, you just keep working on the statue. If you don't like this, work on that part. If you don't like this, work on that part. And it's not that the statue is ever complete or ever perfect, but it's, it's like a work of art, you know, it's like, is a work of art ever done? Yeah. I mean, you can stop working on it, but is it really done? However, it's clear when there's progress. You know, there's like, if I look at a piece of art that a skilled artist spent 100 hours on versus an hour, it's going to be obvious, you know? So so there, so there, in in that way, I think that you can get closer and the, the, the evidence is there and it's, it's self-evident that you're getting closer in, in the same way that like, wow, a really a, someone who's um, really worked on themselves in a myriad of ways, it's, it's going to show, but it's never done. You know, it's, right. it's never, 
it's never a process that anyone has completed, nor could anyone complete. And I think that that's how all of the traditions and ways of thinking that I'm interested in sort of, they create a container that's open-ended. You know, the same like with Jungian individuation, for instance. It's a, there is a container, there are stages in the container, but you, but he's not like, and then you're individuated. It's, it's like, it's like yeah. you keep going until you die. And then maybe after you die too, there's more shit going on in the collective psyche. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that that's too far off from the, the Buddhist approach too. I've been taking classes for about two years now. And that's kind of a question that often gets asked. You know, they're like, well, you know, you say you've been doing it for 50 years, teacher. And, you know, you still have the same neurotic hangups that you did when you started. So, like, why even start? And I think, you know, you talk about, like, the idea of, like, the statue and, like, the, the art is never really finished. My interpretation of that is that it's less of a statue and more of a song. So it's not sure. like this, like, static thing, but it's just, like, you get better and better at playing music, but it takes you to be playing music for the people to hear it. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if that is more splitting hairs or if that even is that profound, but it just like the motion of it, you know? Yeah. And as soon as you stop doing the motion, then stagnation kind of settles in and then, you know, you, you lose awareness of the neurotic things and they just kind of, you know, you could be doing one neurotic thing with awareness or without awareness, same action, but completely different energy behind the action, mm -hmm. you know? And I think it's just developing the awareness that is kind of like the end goal of it all. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I think the, there's like a dynamic aspect of music that I think fits well with that metaphor. But I think they, I think they both kind of, you know, they both kind of achieve the same thing. The, it, the word that in Greek that is sort of um, at the crux of this is this idea of anagage. And uh, ana, anagage is kind of like this, this con concept of a continuous, you know, again, we're, we're using problematic dualistic words for something that we agree is a fundamentally it's not like one or zero and then it stays it's cyclical it's a process but it's it's that process of continually getting closer to truth um even if you're never going to get there you know it's sort of like you don't just climb out of plato's cave you know to use another plato reference it's like you continuously get closer and closer. It's not like, you know, the in Plato's cave, it's like the person who escapes the cave sees the sun for the first time while everybody else is shackled in the cave and they're living in a simulacrum matrix world. And then they come back and they tell everyone about the sun and everyone thinks they're crazy. Well, you got a long way to go after you get out there. Just because you saw the sun, it doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean you know the world and you're, you're done now, right? I mean, it's... Yeah then it's like another game is just starting. Um, and that's what it feels more like to me, Yeah, I guess. I really liked the phrase you used earlier about upping the resolution of your ideas. And I almost feel like the process of like getting closer to truth is just upping the resolution on what's already there. So yeah. it's like, 
even in your most dense neurotic, you're just in this jealous rage, you're angry, you're like self-harming, you're, that is still an expression of the truth. You know, that you're not any further from the thing itself, but you just don't have the resolution to pick out the finer details and to ultimately bring in a sense of joy and a sense of compassion. Like that's already latent, baked in within the thing. I mean, the fact that you have those emotions is actually a sign of wanting to be treated well. Like each of the things that we want to kind of heal, so to speak, are actually the same material of our neuroses, but it's just like the recognition of what that energy actually is. So yeah, I love the idea of upping the resolution. In, and to me, that seems to be um, kind of like the path that I've been kind of subscribing to a little bit more, if that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I do like that. I do like that. Um, speaking of emotions, do you, what do you think? So there, there's this, there's this idea I think a lot of people have trouble with when they, when they start doing any kind of, I guess, mystical facing work, because most of us, I think, stupidly approach mindfulness or the acquisition of, of knowledge from a sort of capitalistic, uh, self-aggrandizing standpoint, right? Like I, I want to, ha- I mean, inherently there's, there's an element of it that, that elevates you. I know this now you don't know it and you can use that as a feather in the cap of your persona or your ego. Right. But then one of the first things they're told to do basically is detach from their emotions, detach from their desire for an outcome. Right. So, so how, how do you think about emotion in this whole equation? Is it a, is it something that you can, that you use or do you view it as like a hindrance or what do you, how do you, how do you think about that? Like you use the example of anger or uh, jealousy. Yeah. Um, Cause Plato has something to say about this too. (laughs) I'm so excited to hear Plato. Um, so yeah, I mean, with my training, what we are really learning to do, the desire to kind of like clamp down on our emotions to kind of purify is innately a self aggressive one. And then it says that I shouldn't have these things. So the practice that, you know, I've been doing, which is largely based through Tibetan Buddhism is saying that like, I mean, there is no person who's having the emotion. So again, from that wisdom tree, there is no distinction between you and the emotion. So they see it as kind of like an energy that moves through you that can either be one that you have a negative reaction to or one that you just allow. So it's all based in the reaction to the emotion rather than the fact that it exists there. So there's this teaching I won't fully dive into is the five wisdom energies of Tibetan Buddhism. And they're like the subatomic base level of all physical reality or even beyond physical reality. And they have associated emotions to them. So I brought up anger, which is the energy of Vajra. So Mm. the enlightened aspect of anger is crystal clear clarity. It's being able to see something. It's the same exact energy, but when it becomes kind of compressed and self-referential, when you start to think I'm a person who's having anger, rather than allowing the energy to just move through you, that's when it kind of becomes 
it creates suffering. So the goal is to work with the emotions in a way where you don't necessarily identify with them, but you fully see them. You turn towards them. You don't necessarily invite them in for tea. I'm not a really big fan of that. Um, you know, I think like there's some teachers who said it, and I think a lot of people misunderstood that you just invite it in and kind of like try and declaw it or like defang it. You don't invite it in, but you don't push it away. You know, you right, just kind of say, right. I, I see you, you know, you are a part of the path. This is what's, this is what's happening right now. What do you have to teach? And not linger there, you know? So I don't think it's about pushing mm -hmm. away, but I think if you don't have the awareness around what's happening, you act it out from the closed off energy position, and then you create suffering, you create unnecessary karma, negative karma, and then it just kind of carries out in an habituated way rather than yeah. being used as a boon. You know, all of these things are the things that make you so juicy, you know? Yeah. And I'm, I'm noticing more overlap here because there's this idea, if you start doing deep dives into Neoplatonism and Hermeticism, there's this idea of, um, I think they might call them governors. And they, they have sort of a, like, they're like the archetypal representatives of different qualities, like different for, you could think of them as gods, you could think of them as emotions. But, but it's essentially serving the same purpose. So like the the Greek or Roman equivalent would be Aries, Mars, right? To what you just said. And that's actually how they're portrayed in this sort of, um, like you'll see these ideas of, uh, of spheres or like six or seven spheres. Like if you look back at old uh, esoteric manuscripts depicting the solar system, it will usually be these like concentric circles and each circle, there will be like a name of a god. Like it'll be like, you know, here's Mercury, here's Jupiter, blah, blah, blah. And if you're looking at that in a gross way or general way, or or a um, the word that we were just using before, empirical way, you'll be like, that's just wrong. That's not how the universe is laid out. But then if you look at it as like, what if this is actually a map of my psyche just as much as it's a map of what's out there? Then suddenly it's extremely wisdom filled because you see my mind is wrapped in these qualities. Like, my, you know, and these qualities need to be balanced. And I need to understand that this quality has too much control over me. I'm prone to get angry, I'm prone to get jealous. And then beyond that, there's this idea of ascending to the, I think it's either the seventh or eighth sphere. I can't remember for sure. Um, and what that is, is a more, that that's closer to what we would conceive of as like a, a God you'd want to be one with, you know, peace, clarity, truth, wisdom, it, like altruistic and so and so when you think of it that way suddenly it becomes much more nutritious psychologically and spiritually but but ultimately that feeds back into what i was going to say about plato because he warned about emotion and about emotions ability to cloud rational work basically because you want to in plato's mind 
associate as much as possible with that part of the psyche that's most like that outer sphere that I was just talking about. That's clear. Uh, it's close. You know, it's closest to the to the um, realm of forms and being. You know, tapped into the the kind of ultimate mind rather than your animal mind. Uh, again, tangents tying it together. Hopefully that made sense. <laughs> no, it's the tangents that are the, that's the thing, you know, that's what we started off by saying. Yeah, I think, um, and again, I have a very uh, sophomoric understanding of Buddhism right now. So I'm just going to preface by saying that. Um, but I know f so far, I mean, what this teaching, have you ever seen the Wheel of Life at all? Is this new? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I'm familiar. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the big things about that is um, the God realm. So it kind of almost sounds like, and I don't want to speak for plain, I don't know, but um, that, that seventh sphere that's kind of like you're merging with this kind of like more saintly kind of figure, to me, really feels similar to like what the God realm is. So like you accumulate all this good karma, you've identified with, you know, benevolence and bliss and compassion, and you have all this stuff, but you're still essentially rooted within the wheel of samsara. So the nirvana, like the ultimate reality of things is beyond even our perception of what is yeah. good. And it's within, I mean, it's, you're neither in samsara or nirvana. You have to have both at the same time. So I think from like the, the wisdom energy perception is that by working directly with, it's not about getting free from the things, it's about opening up to them and allowing them to move through you and animate you in a way, not in a destructive way. So that's when you close and get really me focused rather than like this energy is mm -hmm. part of the space. It's a part of music and the mountains and it, there's no, there's no issue with it. It's just a matter of how you react to it. Uh, I don't know if that. Yeah, communicates. it does. It does. And, and in my, I remember um, during one of my pods, I asked um, Amishi Ja, who's a neuroscientist who studies mindfulness and ideas like enlightenment through neuroscience, through an empirical lens. And we were talking about, okay, if, if enlightenment exists, what would it look like in a person? And she used the example of somebody like the Dalai Lama who clearly he's not emotionless right i mean he he laughs a lot he cries he's you know a very animated person and what she said is that he's able to do pretty much exactly what you're describing skillfully and fully experience and interface with those things and then flexibly move move on when they're done like they they you know the laughter moves through he has a big eruption in laughter and then he moves on. He's right back there with like crystal clear, razor sharp clarity. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that that, that totally resonates. Yeah. I think a lot about, um, so I'm working with a gentleman named David Nickturn. I don't know if oh, you're- Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so his teacher was Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, mm -hmm. which I don't know if you know anything about him, but yeah. he is notoriously known as being a scoundrel. Uh, you know, he's right. had a lot of scandal. He's slept with a lot of his students. And I had a lot of issue because, I mean, this was the primary teacher that we're studying the words of. And, you know, I've like brought this up to David and other people have brought it up. And hearing him and the other people in his cohort talk about being around Trumpa Rinpoche was like, yes, he was an alcoholic. I mean, he died of alcoholism. But there was still never a moment when he was 
not honest about who and what he was. And there was never a moment when he was not crystalline clear, even in like the deepest depths of his like alcoholic binges, he'd be able to just like be stumbling and then just like say something that's incredibly profound and transformative. And that to me, like the idea of like crazy wisdom and that like the being connected to absolute truth doesn't always inherently look the same for everybody if somebody's inherent nature is different. So the Dalai Lama obviously has a very unique birth. He has a very unique place, but I almost feel like you never know, like the bus driver could also be the Dalai Lama in drag, you know, and there's just so many examples and expressions of what the truth actually is that most times we're engaged with it, but we, we don't even recognize it because it doesn't look a certain way. Yeah, I think everybody is capable of extreme wisdom and extreme fault. And the problem with gurus is that they're also people, right? So that means they're capable of extreme wisdom and extreme fault. And hopefully they they trend toward wisdom and self-ego diminishment. I mean, I'm I'm with you in that I'm I'm fairly well I don't want to say well uh explored in my trunkpa but i've i've read multiple books and i'm definitely familiar with his work and yeah it's one of those questions man how do you square all of you know i i don't think by any means you can diminish the wisdom that came from a person like that because of their behaviors but also if i held myself to the same standard would i be okay with that you know like I, I, for me, no, you know, for me, but it's, but it's not just him. I mean, it's, it's everybody, you know, it's, it's fucking ra, the Rajneesh, it's Alan Watts. It's a, a lot of people had their demons that they dealt with and were also objectively brilliant, amazing, um, purveyors of wisdom. So yeah, I think it's up for everybody on an individually individual level on what they want to do with that. You know, I, I'm not I'm not going to not read one of their books or or listen to their lectures because it's like oh this guy was an alcoholic philanderer it's like well he was also fucking brilliant so yeah <laughs> you know yeah well that's one of the the teachings of buddhism too is that you take refuge in the teaching not the teacher so yeah. i mean if you like follow that track i think that that's really helpful if like you are receiving this and you feel when you're like participating in an exchange of residence of like oh this is something that I like understand like immediately like the rational process starts taking place where you're applying it to your perceptions and you're like, oh, there's, I'm really resonating with this. Mm-hmm. But I think if you contain that within a person rather than the entire field of phenomena, because that's really what it is, the fact that we always idolize people when really it's the thing moving through people and through all of us. And yeah. I think when you get really hyper fixated on one of the forms, then you start to run into the issues where now this form is asking you for sexual favors. And rather than, you know, like understanding that the thing that's coming through them, you don't necessarily need them. You know, you could, I mean, this sounds really trite, but like you could go have a conversation with a tree, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's like the ultimate end of it, but you know, you have to be able to still have some cynicism. Yeah. I think that that's really yeah. important. Yeah, well, I, I think from from what I know of David Nickturn, he seems like a great a great person to learn from. He seems like he's galvanizing a great community 
a lot of like-minded people because I know he he comes from the whole uh, Trussell family, and obviously there's a lot of overlap there. So I think I think he seems like a good a good mouthpiece for that wisdom. Because man, I it would be really hard to get ingrained in a community, and you know you you know what it's like where and everyone listening knows what it's like where you become really invested in a person or a group of people and it's a slippery slope a lot of times on what behavior you would accept where if you're at the outset and you saw okay 2 years from now i'm going to be having to jerk this guy off or something <laughs> You're not going to you're not going to take that leap. Yeah. But 2 years down the line one thing leads to another and that's what you're doing, you know? Yeah. And 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 I can see how human psychology allows for all of these things that seem to be deeply contradictory. So, I can cuz you know, you yes you could you could go learn from a tree. But there's that triple gem of Buddhism for a reason. There's the Buddha Dharma Sangha, right? And if you just, if you're knit into that sangha, into in, into that community, and then suddenly you take it away, it's not so easy. I mean, it's that's your whole life, that's your whole social circle, that's your whole value system that you've invested time into. And I think that's why it is just so incredibly important that if you're going to follow a traditional spiritual model, you know, someone that could be called a guru or a teacher or whatever. They, they do need to be a trustworthy person, you know? I mean, regardless of, like I said before, maybe they're spitting wisdom and, and that wisdom is really valuable. But do I want to be part of that group and be one of those people whose wife is getting groped or whatever? No, of course not. I don't, you know? It's a, it's a fun, fun, weird time, which I, I think it's, I think that that's manifesting in our, our time in a much different way. You know, it's much more, there are straight up predators, but there's a lot more predatory ideas, I think. Ideas presented on a false pretense of helping someone or spiritually elevating someone or, you know, tr transmitting some kind of quantum thingamajig that's going to do something constructive for you and, and maybe even the person purveying it has deluded themselves into believing it. But ultimately, just like, let's boil it down to its essence. You're taking advantage of someone. Yeah. You know, I, I yeah. think that that's how that energy seems to be um, spilling out and into our time. Yeah. I call it the spiritual marketplace. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a part of like a music festival culture and, you know, I see a lot of, I mean, what Trumpo would call like spiritual materialism. And yeah. that gets like peddled so much by people who they think that they're doing good things, but they haven't actually taken the time to really spend time with themselves to see all these deeper intentions that are coming through. And I'm not going to demonize people for that. But at the same time, like we really don't have a connection, which is why I also really like lineage. I really like having yeah. a wisdom tree you can point to because mm -hmm. there is a succession of, uh, 
anointed leaders. And I don't think that that is always inherently good, but I also don't think it's always inherently bad. And I notice right now it's really hard for a lot of folks to accept having a teacher and to be taught and to like, I feel like right now it's really easy to just like cherry pick different things. And like, I learned this from yoga and Taoism and this and that. And you end up kind of shortchanging yourself on each of those things. Yeah. You're kind of doing them a disservice, what the path actually offers, because like the rational progression of that kind of requires some like pointedness that I think just gets lost. And then you end up starting a, let's go to Costa Rica together and have a retreat. And it's like, yeah, but what are you teaching me? Oh, I have to subdue my emotions. I have to aggress upon myself. And then they go back and they're all tense. And, you know, I just think that, Lineage is huge. I talk about it so much on this show because it's. Mm -hmm. uh, I just think it's important to spend some time and uh, seek the people out who are doing the really good work. And again, cynicism, 100% of the way. You have to have that sense of like self-reassurance and kind of your own wisdom. You know, you can't just like, I don't have any wisdom. Can I get some from you? You know, it has to come from the self-respect of like, this is my path. I'm the one walking it alone. You know, even if I have a teacher for a little bit of time, all of the decisions, all of the things I have to do with it are me, you know, and have confidence with that too. So I think that that's, yeah. but I also, I really wanted to touch up uh, and we don't have to get into it too much. You don't have to get super political because this is kind of a charged thing right now, but I feel like mm -hmm. it's relevant that we're both podcasters and we're watching this kind of happen in real time. You might already know what I'm going to talk about, but um, sure. The whole Joe Rogan thing going on right now. Oh, I didn't. Well, I didn't. Well, yeah, it's oh. around what I expected. I didn't expect that exactly, but yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I'll riff on that. So, just my general thoughts on it, or yeah, I mean, right now where I'm at. So, I'm just gonna preface that I have listened to Joe Rogan for a bit. Uh, it's been um, seven years. It's how I found Duncan Trussell. Right. You know, it's how I found all my left-leaning political commentators. I'm not like an active listener. Maybe at mm -hmm. this point, one episode every five, six months when someone cools on. Quentin Tarantino is great. But what my interpretation right now is, I don't think that he's inherently a bad guy, but that's kind of irrelevant. The, the point I want to get on is like, how do we handle misinformation in the digital age? And how do we engage yeah. with it? Do we block it? Do we hit a button and have them go away? Or what do you think? I mean, you even mentioned dangerous ideas and that's kind of what sparked that for me. Yeah, well, I think anybody who's been around the quote unquote space of doing these kinds of conversations whether they directly realize it or not, they have Joe Rogan to thank for it. Like this really did not exist in a in this form prior to him doing it. I don't care if you agree with me or not. It's a fact. Like yeah. I in like 2012, I was living in Japan um, and I had a friend tell me to check out an early Joe Rogan and Duncan Trussell podcast. No one I can tell you for sure as somebody who was looking for that kind of discourse, no one was doing it. It was yeah. completely like, what, you know, is this? It's playful. It's profound. It's ridiculous. It's turning me on to new books, uh, new spiritual teachers, new molecules, like all, all of these things that are like coalescing all at once, it's like all of these ideas I slowly assembled over decades, you know, like, oh, reading Big Here, Be Here Now was a big deal. 
reading Robert Anton Wilson was a big deal. Um, but it's like, the, you know, these these moments that are sort of like jewels on the path of sense making. And then they're just like, they're perhaps not as deep, but they're bringing up things at, at a warp speed pace compared to what you're used to. So those things as a, uh, a self, I guess a self-proclaimed <laughs> historian or something did not exist prior to to those two and first rogan doing it they just didn't doesn't mean you have to love him doesn't mean you have to you know um be on his side or whatever so i'm with you in that i think that he is a sort of patron saint pod father of this kind of psychedelic rambling and, and it, it's just true and i do think that it's become a big political sideshow where he's like this lightning rod now and um it's him versus the left even though he didn't really ask for that especially you know if you've listened to him for a long time it, you know it's quite a bit more nuanced quite a bit more complex but then i think on the particular issue i i see why it's caused a kerfuffle i see why people are mad I wouldn't be surprised if Spotify took um, action against him if they start, you know, I don't know if you, how plugged into the market you are, but their stock took a, a big old shit in the midst of this thing. And when they stood by him, I was like, this is pretty crazy. You know, this is pretty wild that they're willing to, to stick it out with this guy because this is for at least a large portion of their of the population and their stockholders, this has to be, um, you know, putting, putting a significant shit stain on their, on their reputation. So we're, I mean, I actually thought that his statement was pretty classy and pretty, um, well executed and, you know, it, it did have the hallmarks of a, of a level headed, emotion-free, thought-out statement. You know, it, it wasn't wasn't anything um, definitive, and perhaps it was somewhat coerced or uh, required. I don't know. I mean, maybe Spotify was like, hey, you got to say something. I, I don't know. But, I mean, when you can admit that you're wrong and you can admit that you need to change and you can say that I have shortcomings as a, as a, as a human and as a host, and I have biases and I didn't, I didn't engage this narrative enough and I engage this narrative too much. And I should have more of that narrative on, I mean, what else do you want from a person? Like you, I, I get that at a certain point, a, a mob just wants a head and that's just as far as it goes. But if you actually want to influence the discourse with your voice, I think that you, you probably got what you wanted because he would, you know, this guy's never going to recant. He's never going to say, Oh, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Take it down. He's going to want to add to the discourse. So I think that's the most you can, you can really ask for. And, and all of that said, I really don't subscribe to many of his ideas. Um, and a lot of them, I still do have 
overlap, you know? So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm ambivalent philosophically, I guess, in that I'm hugely interested just like you in some, I mean, like when Brian Murarescu was on the podcast, the guy who wrote Immortality Key, sensational podcast, one of my favorites in, in years. But yeah, I mean, a lot of the COVID shit was getting just, it just, it's like a beating of a dead horse to me and it's not interesting and it's not a, it's not a, it's becoming like for a lot of people, a replacement for an opinion and a personality, just constantly posting pro or anti or whatever. And it's just like, I'm tired of it. Yeah. (laughs) It's not, it's really not a cool thing to base your online presence on. Um, or a particularly interesting thing, but it's timely and it gets people revved up emotionally. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's complicated as always. Yeah. I'm always interested in it from like a cultural perspective, less than yeah. like a Joe Rogan fan, but more of just like observing the nature of like mass media and oh, yeah. um, how we deal with controversial opinions. And again, I'm going to just start by saying like, I didn't listen fully to the two episodes that were in question. I, I don't agree either. with it. I'm not like, again, like you, I'm not really interested in it, but I really, I think the question that a lot of people aren't asking is not you know, like the nature of the, these episodes. I think the, the real question is like, what about our media space is crazy causing people to look at Joe Rogan for the truth as opposed to our mainstream media networks. So like seeing the uh, the blame get shifted onto this one guy who is largely successful and, you know, he did have some stupid people on saying some some stuff that they shouldn't have been saying. But I think like the big question is like, well, like what about the environment in which this was propped up as something more than what it is as just this dude who has a curiosity which has gotten him mm-hmm. into some darker areas you know and I, I think that the way that the media has often shifted he's the problem right now he's why you know we have this covid thing still going on is him and his misinformation peddling whereas right, like right. it's just such a more complicated thing and totally. just before this yeah. show the white house even came out and was like yeah i think I spotify that. i can't fucking believe that spotify should do something more you know like there's something yeah. more that can be done outside of just labeling the potentially harmful episodes. And the idea that like misinformation needs to be something that you just hit a button and make it go away. I I, I think that that's really bad for public discourse. I mean, they're fucking wrong. It's easy to make a compelling argument to counter them. And I think doing the work to get a bunch of professionals to counter them point by point would have been a much more effective way and probably even for like converting some people who are super anti-vax, engage with it. The moment that you try and censor it, the more you ramp up the people who are already not probably thinking the whole thing through, you know, so it's just kind of like adding fuel to this fire that isn't actually mm-hmm. deepening our understanding of the situation, which yeah. is largely that people don't trust legacy, legacy media outlets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why Joe Rogan is the truth or whoever, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, it's become so much more complicated because I do think there's a huge uh, information literacy issue on one hand and understanding what are all the steps that this information had to go through to get to me, who, you know, what are the references depending on what it is, who who stands to gain from this. And I do think that, that that's a good point is that there's a fun, there's a fundamental difference between a Rogan podcast and a paper published. It does not mean the paper published is 100% true 
but you're comparing like what are you doing you're like comparing a ham sandwich to a like a keyboard it's just like it's two <laughs> things that are like yeah. yeah they both have carbon in them you know they have some like similar similar uh chemical structure somewhere in the chain but they're not the same thing and it doesn't mean you know as we've been belaboring with philosophical masturbation this whole uh episode it doesn't mean because there's a study about it like something is oh it's it's true forever now and there's no ongoing scientific work or discourse or nuance to be had there always is but yeah it's not and and you know what i would even go as far as to disagree and say it's not just some people on a show were wrong and were saying stupid things it's that they're actually highly qualified individuals in their own right but this is what happens when you get a really really qualified expert who understands the technicals much much better than the audience listening and they don't have a counterbalance they run the conversation with an intellectual monopoly and they you can't you don't possess the required knowledge to ask the really important questions a lot of the time and they can and i'm not accusing them of sophistry but if they wanted to they can dress up their argument with so many technicals and so much shit that the audience and that joe doesn't understand that it's not possible it's not possible to you know you're just you're you know we're talking about a stat like uh, the idea of a self statue that you've worked on your whole life well, their statue is that. That is their statue that they've been working on for decades. And it's like, you you don't possess the grammar to question that work. It's too, yeah. it's too much. So then, so yeah, then, then you basically get like propaganda for one kind of argument. And within that argument, there are probably many great points, but it's not the, it's not even close to the whole story and that's what I, that's where i think the informational literacy really comes into play because you start to even you know there's a lot of smart people who listen to it and then they're intelligent enough to start regurgitating a lot of the finer points and and really good points but they don't really know what they're talking about you know the, i mean you and i do this all the time as podcasters right like we read a book and then we just regurgitate a bunch of shit <laughs> and and it you know so yeah i think i think just always view it like viewing all of this with scrutiny all of it with an open mind all of it with a desire to learn but not to come to a conclusion and, and not not the desire to rush to an opinion um i think that's incredibly important yeah yeah, and I mean, I think you can even see, you know, from Joe, I think his response was like really good and like, I'm sorry, maybe I should have these other, but mm -hmm. like at the same time, he also in the building of his own statue, you know, his curiosity, it's his natural innate curiosity that got him down this specific kind of ideological rabbit hole that got him to bring these guests on, you know, he's repeated it during other episodes. And it's like, how do we as a, a society handle these curiosity streams that start veering towards like rampant, like disconnect from what's actually real, you know? And it's like, how do we handle fanaticism or how do we handle, I mean, you could say any ideological situation, you know, it's like, 
do you respond by censoring and keeping people from it or yeah. do you respond by engaging with it which some people say is even dangerous because it muddies up the same waters that real conversation should be had you know and mm -hmm. i think he is maybe we're watching in real time what happens when you start veering off into these more radical views and like it seems like all of the phenomenal world was kind of responding like you're going too far bud and I think he responded as well as he could, but that's just like an interesting idea how there's these safeguards and this cultural conversation that if you steer off from, not saying that it's inherently valoric, valorific, I don't know if that's the word, to do mm -hmm. that, but you know, there are, the, the phenomenal world will let you know. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, man, the, the, I mean, I can't even get too deep into this conversation of censorship, but I will say that I'm not naive enough to believe that there's never a time for censorship. And anybody who disagrees, watch the QAnon documentary on, on HBO. Because there are just these informational cesspools on the internet that are directly tied to acts of violence and mass shootings and, yeah. you know, one-upsmanship that ultimately leads to just extraordinary darkness and suicide and all just all kinds of shit you're really going to tell me that leaving those cesspools up is the right move i don't know i mean yeah it's it's a very complicated thing it is and, and yeah. i think but but what it does seem like is that these things thrive in the darkness you know they thrive on the fringes so if they can go off to this little corner, if you drive them off into this little corner, I think it's it's like a a little bit of a fool's defeat. You know, it's like you you get this group off of Facebook. Well, on Facebook, at least people were looking at it, and at least people with a relative sanity were were commenting on some of the discourse now you've driven them all into a corner where they're going to go develop even more extreme arguments by themselves and that's more dangerous you know and i don't know how we police this or or do this responsibly in a time where there's probably eight billion people on the planet but it, it's an open question i, yeah. I don't know <laughs> Yeah, I I definitely, there's got to be some way to engage with it. But I also am feeling like you create like a ministry of truth and like who watches the ministry, like who watches the watchman, you know? Yeah. At that point, it's like you've created this structure that now has the power to fact, fact check and like chain, accept narrative. And it's like, well, that's a dangerous energy too. So it's like you have on both ends of the spectrum, it's got to be somewhere in the middle. And I just don't know how to... But that might be that's a whole other episode. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't think we possess the technology for it. But I, I can like imagine a technological scenario, like a more egalitarian technological scenario where it's sort of everyone's job in a kind of rolling way, like in the same way that you could get you know, drafted into the military. It's like, hey, it's your job for the next however many months you have to preside over this shit and you just have to. You know, and yeah. maybe we all have to bear that responsibility at some point or something. I, I don't know. I don't know. Digital yeah, jury it's... duty. <laughs> right. Like, oh, yeah. shit, I got it again. <laughs> and then who's qualified? Is it anybody? Is it people with only a certain level of education? And then, hey, isn't that kind of 
whitewashing or uh, creating an intellectual hierarchy among the population. And it's just, it never, it's never going to yeah, happen. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that's like the shadow of having free speech. It's like, do we, it's probably always going to be that way. And whether or not we have ordained channels for it, like it's going to go into the dark web, you know, people who are desperate enough and looking for community in like mind of violence, they're going to get it. You know, mm -hmm. like, I don't think there's ever been um, an end to that in human history. Maybe there will be. I, I kind of don't think so, but <laughs> we can only hope. Yeah. Well, Michael, we are at an hour 25. So I know you have stuff to do today. So thank you so much for joining. I really uh, had a lot of fun with you. Yeah. Likewise. Likewise. It cool. was a, it was a proper sprawler. That's for sure. We went, yeah. we went all over the joint. I hope, yeah. hope y'all enjoyed it. Yeah. Awesome. So where can people find you? What are you, what are you up to? What do you do? <laughs> Uh, the Third Eye Drops podcast. It is on Spotify. It is on Apple, thirdeyedrops.com. Uh, if you want to follow me on Instagram, Third Eye Drops with underscores in between. I could just get that straight up, Third Eye Drops. I just, I just couldn't get it. Somebody else got it? Yep. You can buy it from them or something. I don't know. I've thought about it. All that podcast money. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, much wealth. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you next time, Michael. Take care. Thanks, brother. All right, my friends, that was the episode. Thank you so much for listening all the way through till the end. Again, you already know who that was. That's Michael Phillip from Third Eye Drops. You can catch him at thirdeyedrops.com or tune into his podcast wherever you may listen to podcasts. He's also got them good old social media handles. Uh, same thing, Third Eye Drops. He's got a lot of really cool uh, Instagram content. He's always be posting about quotes and his episode releases and he's got clips for you. He's doing the full thing, you know. He's out here, he's hustling, he's grinding, he's succeeding. He's got a really cool platform, so check him out. Thank you again for listening all the way through till the end. I make this show specifically for you. Yes, you. You're pointing to yourself like, who, me? Yeah, yeah, you, you specifically. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate you.